Well, this morning we will be in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 37. Our passage can be found on page 876 in the Pew Bible. I'll bring the text up on the screen as well. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and, and, being, given in, and, and, and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, and fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two, men grinding, or two women grinding together. Uh, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we all know what that text means, right? <laughs> so many sermons on the vultures scattered in the corpse. It's boring at this point. Uh, well, uh, so the book of Revelation uh, ends with a wonderful summary of Christian longing. Revelation 22, tw uh, verse 20 says, he, being Jesus, Jesus who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then the, the, the writer of the book says, amen, come Lord Jesus. It is good for Christians to long for the return of Jesus. And because when Jesus comes, all the goodness of God, all the promises of the covenant will be made full. There will be no need for hope or faith because all will become sight. But when will Christ come? And we have to be careful here to not let our desire for the Lord's return lead us into error. There have been no shortage over the years for people who would claim to have already beheld the return of the Lord. Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon Church, or the Church of the Latter-day Saints, made such a claim. Uh, so did uh, uh, Charles Taze Russell, who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. He said that Jesus came back spiritually. You just didn't see it. But he knew. And if you follow him, he'll tell you how it worked. 
and and so uh, there have been versions of this as well with Protestant churches and Protestant versions of this is uh, when Christ comes and uh, this is when he will come or he has already come and some guy's showing up saying I'm him. Uh, so how, how, but how do we live in light of the kingdom of God? This is the question that every Christian has to ask. The fact that the kingdom of God is coming, that Christ is going to return. And, to, and it's something that every Christian should care about uh, because uh, we are in the grace of God and we long for that kingdom to come. We look forward to that day when Christ will return and the kingdom will come in its fullness and we will live in glory. So this morning, we're going to consider what Jesus says about the kingdom, about the coming of the kingdom and how it relates to the Son of Man. And we're going to, under, and we're going to look at two particular points that essentially kind of summarize this passage. And the first is that the kingdom of God will surprise you. And secondly, that the kingdom of God will be completed through the Son of Man. So first, in verses 20 to 21, uh, we see that the kingdom of God may surprise you. And Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees here um, who have asked him about the kingdom of God. And he lets them know that the kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that you might expect. Uh, the Pharisees and the disciples alike thought that the kingdom of God would come into the world through uh, bloody yet but righteous conquest as God would enable Israel to finally topple the Romans and be established again as the great light uh, and nation of the world to which all nations would come. And the timing of the kingdom of God is debated uh, amongst the Jews uh, at that time. They argued, uh, some debated, they said, well, God's got a preset time when he's just going to do it. Uh, others said that he won't do it until uh, all of Israel has repented and purified itself. And Jesus lets these uh, religious leaders know that the kingdom of God will not come in the ways that they are thinking. It will not come by glorious conquests that fulfill nationalistic dreams. It will not come in ways that they would normally think to observe the coming of any kingdom, let alone Christ or the, the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of God. It can't be spotted, at least in the terms that they're thinking. And so we would do well to listen to Jesus here and to, and, and, and to uh, put our own thoughts in line with his about how the, the end may come and the fullness of the kingdom of God will come in. If we think the kingdom of God is, because uh, we need some correction here sometimes, you know, if we think about the, the kingdom of God is about, uh, you know, advancing uh, the cause of America, uh, to exalting America above the nations, or even exalting a particular church or denomination above the others, well, then we've got it wrong. Uh, Jesus is, is pressing here uh, the, the overly earthly, pressing against the overly earthly terms in which we are tempted to think about the coming of the kingdom of God. And then he reveals something shocking. He says, the kingdom of God is already here. It's in the midst of you. Now, some in the past, particularly around the turn of the, uh, of the 20th century, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, uh, went on to argue that this, uh, the kingdom of God is advanced and made present through uh, the successful implementation of uh, what you might call progressive social justice issues. And now, 
there is certainly an argument to be made about the effect, the salt and light you know, impact that we might call it of Christians being in the world, of the church being in the world, of the light shining in the darkness through the church and through the gospel. Um, but the kingdom of God cannot be defined in terms of social justice uh, uh, any more than it can be defined by in terms of military conquest. But uh, and, and and so the best way to understand the presence of the kingdom here is is in Jesus's person, in his work, in his ministry. The kingdom of God is here because the King of the Kingdom is here, proclaiming the entrance of the kingdom through him, uh, through belief and faith in him. Further, as Christians, this side of the cross, we recognize that the kingdom of God is wherever the presence of Christ resides. It doesn't mean that uh, the kingdom was here when Jesus was here, and then now the kingdom is not here because Jesus has, you know, has gone off into heaven. Uh, so the, the kingdom is here. Its presence is in the church, not in the physical building of the church, but in the ministry of the Holy Spirit who communicates the presence of Christ Indwelling believers, advancing the kingdom in the hearts of men, women, and children throughout every nation and throughout time. And so we, need to, we don't need to make the mistake to think that the kingdom of God isn't already here, that it's only, it's only coming. But we also don't want to make the opposite mistake and say that the kingdom has already come. The kingdom of God is present in every citizen of the kingdom in all who belong to the king, who is Jesus. And so that's a rather shorter point, but we're going to take the whole, the whole of the rest, the rest of the passage comes in the second point, which is that Jesus makes here, which is that the kingdom of God is completed through the Son of Man. This is verses 22 to 37. And Jesus suddenly kind of switches. He switches not only uh, uh, um, uh, topics uh, from the kingdom of God to the Son of Man, but he also switches audiences. He goes from the Pharisees to the disciples. And so he goes to his disciples and he says essentially three things about the coming of the Son of Man. Is that first, uh, the first thing is that you will know when the Son of Man comes. In verses 22 to 25. All right. And now first, before we talk about that, what in the world is the Son of Man? Is a, I mean, you talk about religious terms. The Son of Man is a very religious term. Now, the phrase appears in roughly, uh, um, uh, roughly, specifically, 189 verses in the Bible. Its usage in the book of Ezekiel with the prophet there and the prophet Daniel present the Son of Man as the Messiah, the one who will bring about the ultimate end of all things. The revelation, he is the revelation of God's glorious purpose and the end, the point to which uh, people and creation are going towards. Is all bound up in the Son of Man. And Jesus lets his followers know that there will be people who, through delusion or malice, will try to deceive you, saying, here's the Son of Man, or over there he is. But Jesus says that the Son of Man will not, you, will not have to be announced in the news. It's not going to pop up as a, as a news item on your iPhone. All right? The status alert. Son of Man has returned. Oh, I missed that one. You know, I was watching Netflix, right? I was busy at the store. I didn't realize what was going on. All right? It will be, it will be so sudden 
visible and powerful. He said it's like when lightning lights up the sky. Wait, you know, you know you're, you're going along, and all of a sudden, there's a flash of lightning, and you go, whoa, what's that, right? And you go like, whoa, because it catches your eye. That's what he says it's going to be like for everybody. And then he corrects a misunderstanding his disciples and the Pharisees share. Because they are expecting a Messiah with a sword, but Jesus prepares them for a disciple for a Messiah with a cross. Suffering, he says, precedes glory for the Messiah. For the Son of Man, he must suffer. And also that is that suffering before glory is the pattern that his disciples are to follow. For as their Savior suffered and entered into glory, so his disciples should expect suffering in this life followed by glory. And that's maybe discouraging on one aspect because we don't always want to embrace or welcome suffering. It's not something we enjoy bringing into our lives. But it is an encouragement, especially when we are in suffering, when we have been going through suffering. To realize that the suffering is the pathway to glory. So secondly, he says, uh, first, that you know, you'll know when the Son of Man comes. But secondly, he says, many will be surprised by the Son of Man, even apart from the suddenness of the lightning-like uh, uh, explosion of his entrance. Uh, even though uh, you're not going to have a hard time figuring out that the Son of Man has arrived... Uh, Jesus says many, many people will still be surprised by the fact that the Son of Man has come at all. Because when the Son of Man comes, he will bring with him the judgment of God. And Jesus gives two examples uh, here. He, gives, he talks about the people in the days of Noah and the people in the, in, the, in the days of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when they fell. Jesus doesn't explicitly reference their wickedness, but that was well-worn material for the audience. Remember, he's talking to Jews here, and they know their Old Testament. They know their Bibles, and they definitely know the stories of Noah, and they know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so all you have to do is say those names, and they know, okay, wicked people who got judged by God. You don't have to say it. They know what it is. But, it's, but he highlights not their sinfulness but rather how preoccupied they were with everyday life, with food, with marriage, with economic engagement, when the judgment fell. One day, in the middle of their busy lives, judgment fell upon them and destroyed them all. Jesus' point here is that many in the world will be caught unawares by the return of the Son of Man either because they are oblivious to the coming judgment or because they believe it will never happen. And that is certainly true of the world today. There won't be a bunch of signs and visible moments that tell us the judgment is here. Jesus will simply return and the judgment will fall. Now this can be dif difficult for Christians to figure out because how do you live in light of that? Clearly, we are, we are not to live as if Christ is coming back literally tomorrow, like as if we know that, because why would you go to work? Why would you invest anything for your retirement? Why would you plan anything for tomorrow if, you know, if, you're, if you're like, oh, no, it's happening tomorrow? 
right? You know, they'll say, like, live life today is the last day of your life. You're like, you can't live like that, right? You will be broke and homeless, right? You can't live like that. So it's, it's so, and so we have, to, we have to live, figure out how to live with the reality that Christ could return at any moment um, while, still, uh, while still planning to live as if he won't and just trusting that he will in his own time. And so it, it's, it requires us uh, to, to not get caught up in the worldly desires of the world and, just, and, and get so, our eyes so caught down here that we never look up and remember that there is heaven and that Christ is returning. And so this may require us to repent of worldliness, to repent of misplaced priorities. It may require recovery of holiness, and of the holiness specifically of God, a recovery of the sinfulness of sin as we renew our own repentance and walk in faith in the Christian journey. Third, he says that the Son of Man will bring judgment and division. Now, we've talked about judgment momentarily, but in verses 31 to 37, arguably perhaps the most con uh, confusing aspect of this section, Jesus highlights that that people will be in a variety of places when the Son of Man comes. And so we ought to be ready, as we just talked about, to, to be with the Lord when he comes. Uh, and, and he reminds us that the, at, at that moment to remember Lot's wife. Now, Lot and his family were fleeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were instructed explicitly by God's angels not to look back. Lot's wife did, and as she did, she was taken by the fire and sulfur that rained down from the sky. But it wasn't simply just a mere glance back. The understanding is that Lot's wife, she couldn't let go of the pleasures of worldliness and the comforts that she derived from them. Her heart was gripped by worldliness, not godly. That's not a female problem. That is an example that Jesus gives because worldliness can grip the hearts of men and women alike. And so with great severity, Jesus reminds us that those who seek to preserve their life in this world will most certainly lose it. No matter what we do, no matter what we save, no matter how much we invest, no matter how much we prepare, we will certainly lose everything if our hope is only in the life we have here. But if we will give our lives up to Christ, if we will give ourselves over to him, then even if we lose our life, we will keep it for eternity with him. And then in verses 34 to 35, Jesus highlights that judgment will fall upon families and co-workers, dividing them, even to the point where a husband and wife will be in bed and, and, and one of them will be taken in judgment. Uh, this is, uh, or, uh, or two women will be working and grinding, uh, uh, grinding uh, um, uh, for, you know, for food to, to cook, and one of them will be taking in judgment. So judgment will come, and it will make a great separation, a great, great division, not between the good people and the bad people, but between the judged and the redeemed. The disciples ask where this will happen. When, where is it going to happen in a place like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 
And Jesus says, just as vultures will find their way to a corpse, so the judgment of God will find its way to the guilty. Really light stuff this morning, right? You know, easy, light topics this morning. But these are the, this is reality. This is one of the reasons we preach verse by verse through the scriptures is because we can't, we can't just skip over the stuff we don't like or that we don't that we find confusing. In fact, actually, there's a confusing moment here because if you're reading your ESV, you'll notice there's no verse 36. So it goes from 35 to 37. So, um, and so, and this is because, um, and, this, and I like to point these things out from time to time because uh, we have to remember uh, how our Bibles came together. Um, our Bibles, uh, uh, you know, believe it or not, they didn't just drop from the sky. So our, our, our Bibles are actually translations from Greek and Hebrew uh, manuscripts, which are copies of the original writings. We don't have the original writings, actually. We don't have the original letters of Paul. We don't have the original writings, uh, which, is, which I'm actually glad we don't have them, because if we did, you can bet we would worship them. You can bet we would bow down. We can bet we would, uh, you know, uh, people would be charging money to come and touch them. You know, like they'll heal you. Like they, they, would, be, they would be awful. They would become idols. Um, but, uh, but we actually, um, but, and that should dis dishearten us uh, because we, in fact, have so many copies and early copies of the scriptures, Old Testament and uh, New Testament, um, that even unbelieving liberal scholars will say, that we can have perfect confidence that we have in our scriptures what was originally written. Okay? Um, even unbelieving scholars will make that point, and, and then they'll tell you why they don't believe it. <laughs> but, but honest uh, liberal scholars will tell you that. Um, so, uh, but, so why is there no verse 36? Well, because um, chapter numbers to the Bible were added. Remember, Paul didn't like write a letter and be like, okay, chapter 1 to the Romans, chapter 2 to the Romans, right? Um, and he didn't, uh, so chapters were added about a thousand years ago, okay? And then about 500 years ago, um, verse numbers were added, okay? Uh, well, the Bibles that were, uh, that, and so our English Bibles are translations from these collections of manuscripts. Uh, and so uh, the manuscripts we had at the time of, uh, of the number, the verse, the, when we added the verses to the scriptures, those verses did have a verse 36 here. And it was actually the, it's actually the exact wording from Matthew 24, 40. And there are two in the field and one will be taken. Okay, It's just another example of two and one's taken in judgment. And, uh, and so now if you go look it up, at the time we only had one manuscript from the 5th century prior to the year 1000 that had that setup of where you had verse 36 in there. Well, that's all we had, and so we assumed that was it, and so they translated that in there, and that was in the English, that was in the King James Version, and you'll see that, you'll find that in the older Bibles, particularly the King James would be the most common. Um, uh, and so, unless somebody has their Reformation Geneva Bible, that was before the King James. So, <laughs> but, um, and, uh, and so, uh, but since that time, we've actually found more and more manuscripts. Now, um, and, so, and so we actually have a manuscript even going all the way back to uh, the early 200s, a copy of Luke, and guess what? Verse 36 isn't in there. We have, we have, we have actually even more manuscripts that were, that were prior to the 5th century that don't have it in there. 
And so what we're thinking, so the thinking is, is that basically a well-meaning copyist that was copying scriptures over inserted that in there from Matthew 24, 40. They assumed that it had been left out or forgotten. And so it got mixed in there. So, so look, some of this can kind of unnerve people. Is that if that unnerves you, just let me know. It's important, though, that we understand where our scriptures come from. We have the word of God. It is inspired. It just didn't drop out of the sky, you know, with, with angels going, oh, you know, and the, the Bible just dropped down. All right. It's, this is actually a process by which we have pulled together all these manuscripts, all these copies, and then we've been able to translate them from them. But as I said, even unbelieving scholars say, yeah, we have what's originally written because we know what we know what Paul says. We know what Moses said. And so if you have more questions about that, you can, you can ask me, but it's important for us to understand how we got our Bibles. And if you notice, notice that in, the, in more modern scriptures, it's not that they're like, Modern uh, uh, book uh, Bible um, uh, printers were like, well, I don't like that verse. I'm going to take it out, right? It's not that. No one's like fooling with the word of God. It's simply that the reality is we have better manuscripts. We have better understanding now. And so that that one's not in there. Now, is any meaning lost in the passage? No. There's no meaning lost there. Um, and and, And just to be clear, there's no differences in the manuscripts, by the way, that say like, Jesus was the son of God and Jesus was just a man or something like that. There's no examples of that in the scriptures in any of the, di- in the, any of the differences. So um, it's always like, I've looked at these. It's always, this is the most boring class in seminary. I've told you all before. It's the most boring class in seminary because it's like, the differences are like, it'll go, Jesus went to the lake. Jesus went around the lake. Jesus went up to the lake. Like, it's just like, those are the differences. And you're just like, this is the most boring class I've ever taken in my life. All right, so, um, but seriously, if you have more, have questions about that, we actually have a whole uh, six-part series uh, uh, that's taught by a New Testament scholar um, uh, um, uh, about this, uh, about this that we can go through. But anyway, so to bring it back to the end of the world, <laughs> to bring it back to the Son of Man, all right, now the most recent and well-known uh, um, Protestant uh, uh, teacher to claim to know when the world was going to end was Harold Camping. Most well-known, uh, he, he predicted that the world would end back in 2011, right? It was May 21st, 2011. Jesus was coming back. Get ready. They bought all these bulletin boards. They had, they had a whole radio program that was dedicated to his teaching and all this stuff, okay? Well, of course, May 21st comes, uh, 2011 comes and goes. I don't, I don't know if you noticed the world did not end. And, and so he said, well, um, he said, well, okay. Um, Jesus did come back, but he came back spiritually. I'm like, that's everybody's go-to, is they're like, no, Jesus did come back, but, but, but he did it spiritually. But he said he will come back and he will come back in judgment on October 21st of the same year. Well, then October 21st came and went, and to his credit, he recanted. All right, he recanted. Harold Camping, he passed away in 2013. But he, he said that he, he concluded that his, uh, his prediction was incorrect and sinful. And he went on to say, quote, We have learned the very painful lesson that all of creation is in God's hand, and he will end it in his time, not ours. We humbly recognize that God may not tell his people the date when Christ will return any more than he tells anyone else the date when they will die physically. And, uh, and they actually, that, the radio, the radio the program that was running all this stuff, they now, they actually switched over to 
doing faithful biblical teaching, uh, um, um, so uh, like teaching uh, the R- teaching of R.C. Sproul and, and, and uh, solid teachers. Uh, but, and I'm grateful that Harold Camping did recant. I'm grateful for that. Um, but even after he did, people were still asking him for a prediction. People were still coming and going, okay, but really when? When's it coming? Right? Because people want to know. But Jesus says we can't know. But here's what we do know. The kingdom of God is already here in ways that we do not readily observe. It's here in the everyday life, in the life of believers. But one day Christ will return and he will bring about the fullness of the kingdom. And when he comes, it will be sudden, it will be visible, and it will be a great and terrible day of judgment upon the earth. It's nothing to, judgment of God is nothing to get giddy about or to go, ha, you know, that kind of thing. So the question is, how do we prepare? Well, we repent of sin. We believe the gospel. We follow the Lord in holiness, resting upon his mercy and his spirit, as we say together, even daily, come Lord Jesus, come soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a certain hope. And we know that the kingdom of God will come. We know that it will come in your timing. And Lord, we pray, Father, that we would take your judgment that is coming seriously. Not that we would cower in fear in the corner as if you're going to throw lightning bolts at us at any moment but that it would move us to take our own sin seriously that we may not be hypocrites that we may be found faithful when Christ returns or when our life ends and we stand before you and Lord we confess readily that we are filled with all manners of, of, of sins and 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 uh, and, and fleshly desires and things that we give into and sins that we protect and we hide and, and, and all kinds of, we're, 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 we're so often just sinful messes. We trespass against so much mercy so often. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us to a place of repentance and faith daily, that we may walk more and more in holiness, that we may be conformed more and more after the image of Christ that our worship would grow more sweet even as we go through times and seasons of suffering and hardship, encouraging one another to stay the course. And as we look forward to that great and glorious day when Christ will return, when, when the kingdom of God will come in, oh Lord, we do long for that day. We long for evils to be made right in the world. We, we long for the fullness of our faith to become sight. But until that day comes, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to joyfully follow Christ and to not walk in superstitions or or some kind of irrational fear, but to walk in a holy fear and love of the Lord, to walk in joy in the grace of the gospel as we worship Christ together. And we pray this in his wonderful and blessed name. Amen.